It is a, a strange paradox. We are, on the one hand, utterly preoccupied with food. Uh, we're, we're air frying, we're truffling our mac and cheese, we're watching reality cooking competitions. The cookbooks, they are huge in our bookshops. We watch gritty TV series about brilliant and emotionally broken chefs. We attend farmers' markets. We're in constant pursuit of the fresh and the, and the seasonal. And yet... On the other hand, as I suspect my guest may quickly point out, we have never been more disconnected from the processes through which our food is produced. Jill Griffiths is a science writer and author of a new book, What's for Dinner? Our Food, Our Choices, Our Planet, uh, in which well, she goes on a bit of a quest to, to make sense of our responsibilities as eaters and, and better understand how... How Our Food Comes to Our Table. Jill, welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. There is nice a, to be here. There is a bit of a rich contradiction in all of this, isn't it? We're a, we're a, a food-absorbed culture. There's no doubt, no doubt about that. Oh, absolutely. And I think we become more and more so at the same time that we become less and less connected with where our food comes from. 2007 was the year in which the world's population became more urban than rural. Mm. And what that means for food supply is that less and less of us are out in rural areas producing food and more and more of us are in cities demanding and eating that food. This book was a bit <laughs> of a quest for you? Uh, yes, I think that's true. I've been writing in sort of agriculture and environment um, areas for a long time and I kept hearing things often in the public discourse, and I thought, and I'd think, hang on, that doesn't match with what I know, or that doesn't match with what I'm seeing on, you know, in, in the professional sense. So there was sort of a, a cognitive dissonance between what some of the things I would hear. Mm. And I thought, hang on, I, I need to delve a little deeper into some of these questions and, and find some answers. Give, give us an example of the, one of those instances of dissonance. I, I suppose there, there's a couple that spring readily to mind. With one, one is um, around you know cows are killing the planet. We hear that a lot. No, so I wondered where that had come from, where this obsession with cattle methane had come from in the public discourse. And so I, I looked back into that to where that happened and whether where how how deep the truth in it was. It stems from a uh, report that came out in the early 2000s from the Food and Agriculture Organisation and they looked at the tailpipe emissions of cars and the total emissions from beef mm. and found that beef was, you know, they, they, they found the, the emissions from raising beef to be very high. Now, that, that particular statistic was later found to be erroneous because it hadn't been it, it instead of matching apples with ap apples with apples as we say not only have they not matched done that and sort of more uh, apples and oranges con comparison it was actually an apples and a box of oranges comparison <laughs> so there was there was uh, that that was um then discounted but that that basic idea that cows are bad had slipped into the public discourse and it's remained there despite lots of research that says, hang on, it's actually much more complex than that. Okay, and worth worth digging into these things because, as you say, this is an area loaded with, with all sorts of assumptions and all sorts of you know, only vaguely apprehended knowledge. We, we sort of skate the surface of this, which perhaps is, a, is our problem. I mean, perhaps we should all dig a bit deeper into the stuff that we eat. 
I think so. But it's also, it's quite hard to do. I found, I, found, I always thought I knew a fair bit about chooks because I've been a, I've been a chook keeper and a chook enthusiast all my life. Um, and I, so I thought I knew a fair bit about them. But when I looked into the role of chickens in the world food supply, I was, so there are more chooks on the planet than any other living creature. Who knew that? I certainly didn't. I, I, I too um, so am there surprised. Was, there, there was, well, there are. There's, there's billions of the things. And and living in, in fairly compromised circumstances, most of them. I mean, this is one of the great, I was going to say tragedies, that's not quite the right word. It's, it, it's one of the great cruelties, I think, of the process by which we provide protein to increasing numbers of people is by being inhuman to small animals like chickens. And there's no getting around that. And that comes back to what we as consumers demand. Yes. Because I think that when when we demand food to be produced at the cheapest price possible, and that is the benchmark that a lot of people and most of us a lot of the time select our food, then that puts a pressure on the supply chain that pushes right back to farmers and the people producing that food to do it as cheaply as possible. The title of your book, What's for Dinner, there's there's a beautiful duality in that. <laughs> I mean, it's there's that question, what's for dinner, uh, but also that underlying and deeper question, what is actually, in fact, <laughs> for dinner? And it's a thing that we we so seldom parse that, that second part. Yes, and one of the statistics that I came across very early in, in my research for this book was that, in fact, 75% of the world's food comes from just 17 species. That's now, 12 plants and go, five animals. Go through that list because that's an extraordinary and, and, and fascinating okay. thing. Okay. So the list is sugar, wheat, rice, maize, soy, potatoes, cassava, bananas, tomatoes, onions, apples and grapes. That's the 12 <laughs> plants. Yep. And then the five animals are cattle, chicken, pigs, goats, and sheep. And what's the percentage again? 75% of the world's food. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting to, to look at that list. And, and this is a little thought experiment I've been doing lately. When, I, when you go to prepare a meal, think about whether you can actually get a meal with none of those things that doesn't lean on any of yes. those things in it. Yes. And it's, it's actually pretty tricky. You can't have pasta. You can't have a pizza. You can't have a, a, a roast with, with potatoes and veggies. It's just even dal and rice, you know, that, 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 come, that comes up pretty, you know, you've got the rice, you've got the onions. It's, uh, it's very hard to get away from. So what's the consequence of that? I mean, I was going to say of that narrowing, and I, I'm assuming that it, it is in... It is a narrowing. How does that then play yeah. out? What does that mean? What, the, what that means is that the diversity of our food system is severely limited and so although it looks as if we are the you know the the supermarkets are crowded with with foods lots of varieties of food just just look at it you know it's but when you look into it really closely there's not the diversity there worldwide that there once was so while we while you know i may have a access to a greater range of vegetables than my grandmother had for example if you look at all of our generation together compared to what the world was eating 100 years ago, there was greater diversity in the world's food supply before because people in different places ate different things, whereas now we all eat the same thing. 
suddenly food production has become a, a globalised entity like everything else. Yeah, so all those, all those billions of chickens in the world, they're on a very narrow genetic range. They're all basically the same variety. All the bananas are of the same variety of Cavendish bananas. And, and this, all of those bananas are clones. So they're all genetically identical, all those plants. So putting your biologist... Now, what that means... Yeah, well, is, I was going to say, what, what does that yes. mean? <laughs> <laughs> what that means is that there's less resilience in the system. So, you know, we hear a lot about biodiversity these days, and mostly we hear about it in context of the natural environment and, and you know, loss of biodiversity in natural environment. But we're also experiencing that loss of, nat- of biodiversity within our food supply, and that means that things are more vulnerable to disease. They're less... They're less it, it, Irish potato famine is the, the classic example from, from history where one variety of potato was grown extensively. So when a pathogen struck in Ireland, all of the potatoes were vulnerable to it. There wasn't a pocket of something with resistance. And so that's the, that's the risk in narrowing the diversity of the, of the food supply. The consequence of that narrowing and of, of those implied risks, I, mean, I guess that goes to the way in which we... We, we raise these things. It, it, it puts us into a position where we are dealing perhaps with more chemicals and pesticides to sidestep some of those uh, risks that comes from those, those sort of genetic monocultures. It does. And it, it, it's one of the things we inadvertently demand when we expect an apple to taste exactly like we expect it to taste every single time we pick an apple up. Yeah. Yeah, we need to perhaps loosen up a little bit there. <laughs> well, you you point out that the way that we eat is is changing, and, and and it's changed quite dramatically in the last sort of four or five decades. Can you can you sketch that change for us? On on, on one level, we've become much more multicultural. In the, I'm talking in an Australian context here, and yet at the same time, we've um, increased the amount of food we eat dramatically, like our portion sizes have increased a lot. And we all know that we all eat whatever's on our plate because we're all good kids at heart. So those, those things have changed. We're also more inclined to buy more processed foods. The, the actual, the category of highly processed foods is the fastest growing segment of the supermarket uh, food supply. So that's the so we buy much more prepackaged food. We buy much more things that are more divorced from where they came, mm. if I can put it that way. You say too that uh, and that, that that that's huge change and all that. But I mean, it's interesting what it represents. You you say there's a, a disconnect between the economics of of agriculture and the economics of of the consumption of food. Can you explain that? Well, at the same time that we demand cheap food. We demand more of farmers. And I, I think part of that is this, this rural-urban disconnect. Mm. So it, it used to be that everyone in the city had a connection to someone in the country. We've moved away from that as we've become more urbanised. What that means is that we don't know as much about what goes on on farms or why it goes on. Yet at the same time, we have these ideas that mm, things aren't good out there. And so we put demands on farmers that they do things in a particular way, even though we don't really know what they're doing. So, you know, it it doesn't sit well, I, I think, that, that that's the case, because I think that we we tend to forget that we actually all need to eat, preferably three times a day, sometimes a few snacks along 
why as well. Um, it's, and we take that we take that abundance for granted, mm. and that's new mm. in human history. The security of that abundance is a new thing in human history. That's very easy to forget. You know, it's only it's only a couple of generations ago that you needed to have a vegetable garden to have veggies to eat. Which is the thing that uh, you know we we increasingly have a curiosity about. Of course, that um, absolutely, absolutely. The, the the tub of tomatoes on the balcony—that's a thing that that attracts many people. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Yes, oh, I think it's a great thing to do. I think it's a great thing to do on many levels. Partly, partly because it actually demonstrates that it's not uh, not actually as easy to grow things as perhaps <laughs> in, in the quantities think. that you might need. <laughs> yes. In the quantities that you might need, and it's it's quite nice to have the backup of uh, you know the um, shops to to go to if you you know so you don't have to go hungry, um, but also because I think it's it's just a good thing to do. It's a good it's a good connection. I'm 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 all for for building that connection. But I think if it, that that creates even obviously that pot of tomatoes is not going to feed your family through the summer, but uh, it will give you that sense of okay, this is how this process works. Um, you know, and, yeah, and, and that's a, that's an important connection to make. I think that's a really important connection to make. There's a there's a little story I I tell in in my book, and yeah, sorry, spoiler alert, um, about a, an environmental program that was run. I think it was in New York, um, called Let's Grow Pizza, where a teacher asked the kids they said they were going to do some gardening and and what would they like to grow, and the kids wanted to grow pizza. And you know where would we get pe- how would we, how would we grow pizza? Well, we'd grow them from pizza seeds. And so the the teacher took the kids to a pizza shop and asked they asked for pizza seeds, and they said no, I don't have pizza seeds. But here's some wheat grains and here's some tomato seeds. And so the kids grew wheat and they grew tomatoes and they they didn't grow enough of either to actually make their pizza, but they grew enough to have an understanding that pizza dough comes from flour, which comes from wheat. And tomato paste comes from tomatoes, which are grown on tomato bushes. And so, you know, making those connections, I think, is is really important. One of the interesting things, too, I mean, you mentioned that 75% of the world's food from 12 plant species, five animal species. The, the counterpoint to that, uh, in, in this country, for example, you talk about 6,500 native foods uh, in, in Australia. Yes. Isn't that a, a wonderful of sense of abundance and yet an ignored abundance? And yet, and yet, um, one of those native foods has, I'm going to say made it, which is a, which is a terrible, terrible <laughs> description, um, but that, that is, you know, widely grown commercially and, and that's macadamia. That's the, that's the only mm. Australian native plant that is up there in terms of its production for, for our food supply. And, you know, when did you last eat a macadamia nut? It's, it's, not, it's not quite, you know, like it's not in the, the realm of those. those. It's not a daily staple, plants. no. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think that we do need to lean a little into that um, native diversity of plants. And there's a, there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening in that space, I think, just starting to happen. But those plants are unlikely to ever join the ranks of the things that that truly feed the world. But I don't think that matters. I think that cultivating patches of diversity within that other 25% of where our food comes from, I think that's really important. Jill, thank you. Great questions and and 
thoughts thoughts I'm sure have been provoked. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for the thanks for inviting me to chat. Jill Griffiths is a science writer, author of the book that we've been discussing, What's for Dinner? Our Food, Our Choices, Our Planet. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.